Okay, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Luke 3, 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall be come level ones and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Lord, I ask that you give us eyes to see this historical event in the words of Holy Scripture with our hearts, with our minds. I ask that we will see that we are along with some who loved the message to prepare our hearts for Jesus. Who loved the grace of that says, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Continue to work these great truths in us, and especially now, as you help me unfold this text of Scripture. Amen. You ever wonder why in the hearing of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, one person over here in embraces that message and Jesus as their Savior personally. And another person right next to them, their buddy, their brother, doesn't. It's because one person's heart was prepared. And the other person, their heart, was not. John the Baptist comes preaching that a heart of repentance is the preparation for receiving the coming of King Jesus into one's heart. That's true today as it was down by the Jordan River. So let's go. Turn there again. Luke 3. Let's look at verses 1 to 2. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, notice, he has not had a main verb yet. He hasn't gotten to what he wants to say yet. He finds all those words important in what he's doing. 
And one thing those words are doing, from what we saw last week, what he just said, we had Jesus at 12 years old in the temple, and now, kaboom, we just jumped 20 years. We're in the year eighty twenty-eight or eighty twenty-nine. John and Jesus are somewhere between the age of 32 and 34 years old. And so, by listing these leaders, he's saying, look, the message is going to unfold in this narrative now, throughout the rest of Luke's Gospel, are not nice stories so that they can communicate religious, moral, ethical lessons for people. Because good, fictitious fairy tales often do that. And that's not necessarily bad. Luke, as he started off his narrative in chapter 1, verse 1, again here, is concretely saying, these events happened in history. They're real. This is when they happened. These are who were ruling. Go back and figure out the math and you can tell pretty much exactly when they happened. That's how they did it back then. Okay. We do our calendar. Hundreds of years later it came about. We look back and we put years to it like A.D. 20. 829. They did it like something like this. In the third year of Barack Obama's presidency, while Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein are the senators of the state of California, you want to be real specific about whatever, uh, when the Chicago Bears were playing the Green Bay Packers in the NFC Championship game, well, they've done that before. Yeah, but when you put that all together with Barack Obama's presidency, you know which particular day we're talking about. This is essentially what he's doing by listing these seven rulers and leaders. He starts from the top all the way down to provincial leaders, and then he goes to the religious leaders of the Jews. He says, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar... So remember, you got your Western civilization down a little bit. Julius Caesar, he was murdered. Then Octavian became the second Caesar, named Caesar Augustus. We've already seen him. He died in AD 14. Jesus is about 18 years old. And then comes Tiberius Caesar, who was Caesar Augustus's stepson. He's reigning, and the text says, in the 15th year of that reign that began in A.D. 14. So that brings us to A.D. 28, A.D. 29, somewhere right in there. Same time, Pontius Pilate is over Jerusalem and Judea area, the Jewish country. Under Rome, he's over them. Remember Herod the Great, who should be called Herod the Vicious. We've already seen him. He reigned for a long time over that entire Judea and Galilee and further north. He had that whole area for decades. And when he died, finally, right about the time, right after Jesus was born in, in 4 B.C., 
all his lands were split up. And his son, Herod Antipas, got the Galilee region. When you look at your maps in the back, and the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is from that area. He's ruling over that. His brother, Philip, further north, northeast, is ruling at this time. And then Licinius, even further north than that. Okay, he's a, you can pinpoint it. And then he goes to the religious leaders and he says, in or during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, it's strange on the surface because there's two guys and he says one priesthood. And there's only one high priest at a time. Annas was high priest until about 14 or eighty fourteen, And Rome essentially kicked him out of that. But nepotism and politics were all over it. He had a couple sons in there periodically. And then by about 18, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was high priest for the next almost two decades. And what was going on is Annas never really lost power. He's controlling things through his son-in-law and the high priesthood. And Luke wants all this stuff to come out. He says, here's Rome. They're in control. Here are their rulers. Here's the religious situation also. Dark, political, and religious stuff. The high priesthood was meant to be a spiritual leadership post. And neither Annas or Caiaphas knew God from a hole in the wall. It was all game plain. I'm going to turn for a moment and quote from what I think was one of the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, George Ladd. In his New Testament theology, he helps us set the stage here for the drama of what we see here in Luke 3. He writes, The significance of the ministry of John the Baptist can be appreciated only against the historical setting of the times. For centuries, the living voice of prophecy had been stilled. No longer did God speak directly through a human voice to His people to declare His will, to interpret the reason for the oppression of Israel by the Gentiles, to condemn their sins, to call for national repentance, to assure judgment if repentance was not given, and to promise deliverance when the nation responded. Just pause as God was doing through centuries of Israel's history that we can read about with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos constantly calling back to repentance. Dr. Ladd goes on. In place of the living voice of prophecy, two streams of religious life, both deriving from a common source, came about. First, scribal religion which interpreted the will of God strictly in terms of obedience to the written law as interpreted by the scribes. And second, the apocalyptists, who in addition to the law, embodied their hopes for the future salvation in apocalyptic writings, usually cast in pseudepigraphal mode. So, what is going on is during these four centuries of prophetic silence, the beginnings of Judaism are happening. 
They're being developed. Oral traditions. They got the book. They have the Scriptures. And from that come interpretations. And those interpretations become very authoritative. And they're passed down orally. Halakha. That stuff is being developed. And you will see, Jesus has to deal with some interpretations that, that they have. And the Jews, especially in Palestine, the, most of them are very religious. Okay. They're keeping kosher. They circumcise their children, uh, as the Scripture tells them. That's going on. And what else is going on is, is their Left Behind series. apocalyptic writings that we still have, that they did. Apocalyptic kind of writings is, we have one of those books in the Bible called the, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And you've got all this picturesque, wild, metaphoric language going on with dragons and coming out of oceans and stuff like that. That's apocalyptic type style of writing. And they had that concerning the coming of the King, the Messiah that they're waiting for. And there are differing views like there are today with Christians on what's going to happen with the second coming for them, what's going to happen with the first coming and destroy Rome. And so this is the setting. I mean, they got context, they have theologies, and they have in Isaiah and in Malachi God's holy word texts that are talking about God promising to send a messenger as a forerunner before King David's son, the Messiah. And so it was against that. First century backdrop in A.D. 28, A.D. 29 that we read in verse 2. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, that right there, what Luke does, that's prophet talk. The Word of God came to John. The Word of God came to Isaiah. The Word of God came to Jeremiah in the year of Josiah the king. This is prophet talk, the way Luke puts that. 400 years of silence to the nation of Israel. And in AD 28-29, not in Rome, the center of political power, not in Jerusalem, the center of religious power, but out there in the desert region of the Jordan River comes this guy dressed in prophet clothes, preaching outdoors with a loud voice. And people are hearing about it and saying, you've got to come see this guy. And he's preaching a preparation to the people of Israel, particularly the Jews is who he's preaching to. Prepare! The King is coming! And in particular, what Luke is saying, here we are, AD 28, John the Baptist comes preaching down by the Jordan River a baptism of repentance and this guy is the fulfillment of the prophecy that came 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 40. That's our text here this morning. He preaches. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. 
and be baptized. So this guy, John, remember we've learned some things about him already. Luke has already let us know that this man was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mom's womb. For over three decades now, he has been invaded by the Holy Spirit. And he has been living a consecrated, secluded life. His parents probably died numbers of years before this. They were pretty old when he was born. He has probably been living under the Old Testament Nazarite vow of consecration unto the Lord. Like, like Samuel. Why do I say that? Because you remember in chapter 1, the angel said to his dad about John, He will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This whole non-alcohol thing. You just add don't cut your hair in his seclusion. That's the Nazarite vow. So for 30 years, he's just out there in the wilderness. In solitude. The very last verse of chapter 1 lets us know something. In verse 80 it says, And the child, that is John, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so out there, for all this time, there is this prophetic personality being developed. And now we read the Word of the Lord now, now, in eighty twenty-eight twenty-nine, came to John. Literally, the Word of the Lord came upon John from above. And that Word of the Lord pushed him, caused him to go public now. Caused him to go to the masses of his fellow Jews and preach in the power of the Spirit. And in verse 3, Luke describes John's preaching as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Quote, He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance, that's the Greek word here, Metanoia. Its basic meaning is to change directions. To, to turn around from the way you're going and turn back in the other direction. The way you live of your life, of your thoughts, of what you think. And notice that it's a repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins. has to mean that true repentance, turning that John is talking about, starts with recognizing your own sin and alienation from God. 
So that rather than continuing in the path that you're already going, you turn back to God and you appeal. Got to hear this because this is John's message. You appeal to nothing but mercy. Repentance here is a heart issue before God. It's a heart issue that evidences itself in how you live, in the decisions, and in the actions that a person makes. Now, remember, Luke has already given us some understanding of John's message of repentance. Again, back in chapter 1. When the angel Gabriel came to his dad, Zechariah, he helped explain what John's ministry is going to consist of. Starting with verse 16 of chapter 1, the angel said, And he, your baby, John, He will turn. There it is. Now, it's not the same word as repentance, but that's what repentance is. Turn! And he says it. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah the prophet, and he will turn, there it is, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just in order to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's going to turn hearts That's repentance. And so John comes and by the Spirit, as God's prophet, promises forgiveness of your sins in response to people turning back to God and repenting. And then he tells them, demonstrate this heartfelt resolve of repentance by submitting to the water in the Jordan here where I'll baptize you, cleanse you. Okay. Now, we don't know enough probably. But if we did, we would say, wait a minute. What in the world are you doing? John? These people are religious. They're not atheists. They read the Bible every week in the synagogue. What are you doing? And what John was doing in the first century here was stunning. In its context, it was baffling to them. And for those religious Jews who took pride in their Jewishness as if they're someone special, 
And they trusted in their religiosity. John's message was downright offensive to them. Because at the core, what John is saying to the Bible people of the day is that you, my fellow Jews, you physical descendants of Abraham, you need to become true children of Abraham. He's saying to them, you are in the same boat as unclean Gentiles. You need to prepare your hearts to welcome the salvation of the King and what He's bringing to you. What I mean is this. With His message of repentance and His method of baptism, He knew, John knew, this meant something to his fellow first century Jews. Now, now there was baptisms of some Jewish sect in what is called the Qumran community over by the Dead Sea. Very, very separatist even from most of all the other Jews. And they had differing kinds of baptisms and washings. But, But John's appealing, I think, to this idea of proselyte baptism. That the non Jew, the Gentile, who starts to fall in love with the scripture of the Jews and and wants to go the whole way and become a Jew, which he could. You can convert. You can become a proselyte. And so you're a guy, and you're going to go the whole way. You're going to have to go through the ceremonial cutting of circumcision. And you'll go through a baptism, a cleansing, to convert. John is implying to these religious, observant Jews, that unless you go through this, it's different than that, but unless you go through this with me, the prophet and the message, and the one who's coming, you're not truly Jewish. He's saying, stop trusting in your heritage, in your bloodline, in your religious observances, your kosher diet, in order to put yourself in good standing with God. He is implying you have misinterpreted the Scripture. He's saying, get saved. He's saying, convert. He's saying, come to genuine saving faith. That's what he says. He just says, the flip side of faith. Turn the head over and look at the tail. Genuine repentance. It's his message. Can't separate those. Have a heart of repentance. Or trust, therefore, in the Scripture in the Lord, and prepare your heart to receive the One who's going to come right after me. Let me quote again from George Ladd in his New Testament theology briefly. He writes, and this is true, and I've found this out this week in reading numbers of commentaries. There are some scholars who have argued that it would be too paradoxical 
for John to treat Jews as though they were pagans. Lad goes on. But it may well be that this is precisely the point of John's baptism. The approach of God's kingdom means that the Jews can find no security in the fact that they were children of Abraham. That the Jews, apart from repentance, had no more certainty of entering the coming kingdom than did the Gentiles. And both the Jews and the Gentiles must repent and manifest that repentance by submitting to baptism. This is John's shocking message. Now, just for a moment, 28 years later than this, post-cross, missionary journeys going on, the Apostle Paul will write something that just the same thing John is implying. In Romans 9, Paul writes, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul's a Jew. For the sake of my brothers, that is my kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, has come the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, now Paul goes on, listen. But it... Stop. Because the problem is, even now, 28 years after the cross, some Jews are repenting, their eyes are opened, and they're embracing the Savior Jesus. In the majority of the Jews, not only in Palestine, but throughout the Roman Empire, are rejecting Him. That's the context. This reality, he says, but... It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Why, Paul? Because not all who are bloodlined, physically descended from Israel belong to Israel. He just said not all in one sense who are Jews are Jews. And not all are children of Abraham just because they are physically His offspring. And so, John the Baptist, going back a few decades from Paul, he is saying, fellow Jews, you cannot rely on your Jewishness or your religiosity or anything else that you do or refrain from doing or who you are or who your mommy and your daddy are. You can't rely on anything as the ground of being saved and forgiven of your sins by the promised King. He preached this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as the forerunner to Jesus and particularly preached it to Israel, His fellow Jews. And now, look, Luke goes on 
to quote Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. And he does this in order to show that John's ministry is the fulfillment of this 700-year-old prophecy. Let me, let, me, let me start with verse 3. And John, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Every valley shall be filled. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, let's just slow down. Remember context. John is not Matthew. John's writing for a particular... I'm John. No, he's not. Neither is Luke. He's saying, O Theophilus, O Gentiles, O Theophilus Roman ruler, as a Gentile struggling, okay, maybe this gospel of Christ and forgiveness sins is right, but I'm struggling. What is the deal? Why are the Jews saying we, we can't stand Him? They, they were part of putting Him to death. What do we make of this? And, and Luke is, this is a theme going throughout. He's saying, Theophilus, let me tell you something. From the beginning, this is not a, this is not all the Jews rejected him and uh, God scratched his head and went plan B to the Gentiles. He says from the very beginning, you can see it in John's ministry, he is always the forerunner to the Savior who was always sent to the Jews. And to the Gentiles. Remember what Luke already showed us when he gave us the account of Simeon prophesying over baby Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse, starting with verse 30, Simeon says, I can go ahead and die now for my eyes right here with this person, this baby. My eyes have seen your salvation he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is Luke's emphasis. Oh yeah, and He is the glory of Israel. But He's always purposed also for the Gentiles. Now, if you look at Matthew and Mark's account of John the Baptist, they also, along with Luke, all three of them, Quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This part. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. They all quote it. Matthew and Mark stop there. L Luke continues on with the Isaiah quote. And when you... Christian, as you're reading your Bible, good Bible interpretation, it's to ask questions like, why does he do that? 
I mean, he's not, he didn't just get tired and forget to stop writing. He's purposely saying, what am I putting in here or withholding when he wants to describe John the Baptist? They're all three right. Isaiah 40 is about John. And Luke wants to continue with the quote in Isaiah 40, saying, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And here the last one. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's what he wants in there. He wants to say... In John's ministry, the ministry of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and salvation was always for all flesh, not just Jewish flesh. And with the quote, when you go back say, Isaiah, what are you talking about here in chapter 40? He's talking about the same thing. Luke. Luke's not changing the context. He takes what Isaiah meant, and so we ask the question, what is Luke and Isaiah, what were they doing about this thing with John the Baptist? They are drawing a picture of his ministry. And the picture that they are drawing is essentially this. In Isaiah's day, when a king would announce that he's coming to a particular remote village, that village gets news of it. There's some stuff that's supposed to happen. In other words, to get to that remote village, there's trails that are very windy, hilly, crooked, brush over them, not very wide in places, boulders, ravines, rocks, and they're perfectly fine for your average village person. But they are not suitable three months down the road here when the king is supposed to visit your village. And so the villagers need to get the road crew out and straighten out some of these roads, knock down some of these hills and mountains, fill in ravines, make wider and smoother paths by getting rid of rocks and boulders and make it smooth and level for the king and his entourage to come to the village. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what Luke is saying. When they say... He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make the or His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways then He's going to come. And all flesh shall see the salvation of the King of God. Of course, it's metaphor. This is a spiritual picture. 
John the Baptist is the foreman on the road crew. And he is preaching the ravines and the twisted ways and paths of our hearts need to be fixed. The potholes, the boulders of sin and rebellion need to be removed or filled in. The King of glory is coming and we're in trouble. That's His message. Our hearts need to change. We need to make the roadway for His coming smooth, straight, King's coming with blood earnest seriousness. John's preaching, and we should hear him. Straighten out your crooked, deceptive, cheating, unloving, prideful, arrogant, religiously prideful. Ways of the pathways in your heart. Because the King does not travel on those roads. The King's highway that John was building was a highway of repentance. He's saying, I'm not talking about literal roads. I'm talking about the condition and the pathways of your hearts. He's saying, recognize how bad it is. And cry out. In, Forgive my sin. Help it. Change my pathways. Oh Lord. Change the direction. He's saying, you won't fix a path until you recognize how messed up it is. The commentator Daryl Bach concludes this way. And now, here with Luke's usage of this text, it becomes clear. The fulfillment of Isaiah, the fulfillment figure who cries out in the wilderness is John the Baptist. The preparation of the Lord's way and the making of straight paths for Him mean clearing the way for God's coming. The heart that turns in repentance is to express itself in concrete acts and to await God's deliverance. John's call to them And the same call of repentance today was not then and is not now a call to earn forgiveness. It's not then and it's not now a call in which God's paycheck is, wow, look at that. Therefore, I will pay you at the end of the week salvation. Repentance is the flip side of saving faith. There's only one coin. God comes 
with mercy. He comes with that which cannot be bought. He comes offering an absolutely free gift of eternal life with Him. Sins put away. Righteousness put to your account. Nothing you could possibly earn. And He says, receive it. But the reality is, nobody will ever receive it unless they recognize it as the precious gift that it is. That, that's called faith. That coin of faith. You flip it over, the coin is a genuine repentance that hates its sin that even still remains. It is changing direction. See, that faith that John's appealing to and that God is constantly appealing to today, it's not the faith of pride. This was at the core of John's message. Do not think you could turn to, well, I'm Jewish. (laughs) Therefore, I'm in. Don't think, well, I'm a Gentile who basically good person. I'm in. We'll see later in the Gospel Luke. Don't ever appeal. Well, look at me. I give 10% of all my earnings. I fast twice a week. Unlike that guy. I'm in. No. Faith is that tax collector over there in the corner. A sinner. A guy who was spending his life not only collecting taxes for Rome, but he liked his job because he knew how to get his cut above and beyond. Faith is that guy saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because faith by its definition is trust. It trusts in the promises of the one true God who has spoken in Scripture and has come through His prophets, even His prophet, John the Baptist. It trusts in those promises above the promises of sin. And how many know that sin really has a lot of very tempting promises? It will feel good to give it to that person. It will feel good to ignore God's Word there. We don't sin without promises. 
faith is that miracle that lets us see that true happiness, not just a periodic little temporal hedonistic joy, but true happiness is found in Him, in Him alone through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's the wisest thing that our hearts cannot do apart from the grace of God that is constantly moving in His children who have initially come to repentance and faith. John the Baptist is, next couple of weeks, God willing, will see. He lays out some concrete examples that I just genuinely just spoke about. But one thing is clear, even today, and that is there is nobody back then And there is nobody in churches like this that has actually saved, that has actually embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior if there is no sign of genuine repentance. And this text Let's us know clearly that without repentance there is no forgiveness of sins. Repentance? Then and now. It's the evidence that the grace of God has infiltrated a heart that was dead and brought alive. But God, Paul says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, He made us alive together with Him. And He seated us with Him in heavenly places. For by grace have you been saved. Through faith. Yeah, that's why it's there. Which was a gift. It was a gift. It was a gift of God. And therefore He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Not perfect works. But there's evidence that's there. John was us and he is now calling for the ongoing sensitivity to the road conditions of our hearts. True repentance stirs us. True repentance is that which painfully in the Christian life, strips us bare so that we can enjoy fellowship in true salvation with Him. If you've never come to Jesus, there's the message. The one who came after John purchased the forgiveness of sins. Offers it as a gift. And says, trust that. Which is to say, repent. Turn away from the love of everything else. Turn away from putting your Hope for real happiness and joy in the world. And embrace the resurrected living Christ. 
John's message for us, who says, I've been there, I'm living there for the last three months or 20 or 40 or 80 years, is constantly a life of repentance for one simple reason. It is a life of a person who has come alive to only taste the true happiness by the work of the Holy Spirit, which we will get the full measure later. And therefore, we're left as sinners. And the evidence of that grace in us is that we don't go too terribly long in a heart of unbelief, in hardness toward God. And don't be fooled. Hardness toward other human beings when we're sinning against them is first and foremost hardness toward God. And that breaking heart, you feel it. You should rejoice even while you're forgiving and know the gospel. He has. I want to close by reading a little extensively because I ran across this blog post this week and and I excerpted from this article that's going to be in Table Talk magazine, I think, next month. And the question just starts this way. Why is it that so many of us love King David? And here's here's, here's the basic answer and then I'm going to let the writer, Kevin DeYoung, uh, Just speak and we'll close. But the basic answer is, why do we love this broken, screwed up, stupid, dumb, sinful decision at times, man and worshiper of God? Because he's an example of a life of what John the Baptist calls everybody who will receive the King Jesus into their heart. So I quote, Everyone who knows the Bible knows that King David was a great man. And yet everyone familiar with the Bible will also recognize that David did a lot of not so great things. So with all these flaws, what is it that made David great? One could easily mention David's courage, His loyalty, his faith, his success as a leader, musician, and warrior. But he was great in other lesser known ways as well. In particular, David was a great man because he was willing to overlook other people's sin but unwilling to overlook his own. David's kind-hearted attitude toward his enemies did not translate into a soft attitude toward his own sins. Usually, people who are soft with other people's sins are soft with themselves. And those who are hardest on themselves are even harder on others. 
But David was different. He was gracious with others and honest with himself. I believe David's greatness was simply this. For as much as he sinned, he never failed to own up to his sin. I cannot find a single instance where David was rightly rebuked for his failings, where he then failed to heed the rebuke. When Nathan confronts David for his adultery and his murder, David, after he sees what Nathan is up to, quickly laments, I have sinned against the Lord. When Joab sends, his, when, when Joab sends the woman of Tekoa to change David's mind about Absalom, he listens. When Joab rebukes David for loving his treacherous son more than his loyal servants, David does what Joab tells him to do. Joab was often wrong in his advice to David. But when he was right, David saw it and changed course. Likewise, after his foolish census, David's heart struck him and he confessed, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. David knew how to forgive. And he knew how to repent too. He never blamed others for his mistakes. He did not make excuses based on family history peer pressure, or the demands of leadership. He did not use passive language referring to his sin as a dysfunction. He did not lament over his sin simply because of the negative effects they could have over his kingdom and his relationships. He saw his transgressions primarily in their vertical dimension as an offense against Almighty God. He never ran from the light when it exposed His darkness. Instead, He squinted hard, admitted His iniquity, and worked to make things right. David was a man after God's own heart because he hated sin. But he loved to forgive sin. What better example of God could there be? God doesn't just welcome His enemies in. He dies in their stead. He is always eager to show mercy. Always willing to give traitors a second chance. And yet... God is not soft on sin. He exposes it and He calls on us to exterminate it. But of course, God, unlike David, is never guilty of His own sin. God showed His condescension not by humbling Himself before a needed rebuke, but by humbling Himself to take on human flesh And to take up the cross. David was great. But not nearly as much. 
as great David's greater son. End quote. Our text this morning in Luke, it's not a call to perfection. You will not live a sinless life. It's a call to pursue joy in the Father through the Son by the presence of the Spirit. It's a call to do that as people who love what He speaks in the Word. And thus, this tension that loves yet hates. That's the sin part. The light of the Word of God constantly shining on the darkness of our moves, of our actions, of our feelings. It's a call to pursue God in repentance. That is, pursue hatred and declare war on that remaining disposition of sinfulness. To enjoy the great Savior tomorrow more than today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, incarnate, true man, true God, who has come and humbled Yourself to become very human and to be tempted in all things like we, and yet to experience that temptation in a way we can't imagine because You never gave in. May the grace in the work of your Holy Spirit purchased by your death and assured by your resurrection work in every soul that's in here now and continue to work throughout this week and this month and our lives causing us to flee to you in joyful Repentance. Because you truly are a greater treasure than all that these temptations offer. To the glory of who you are, to the glory of your name, and to the glory of your Father, I pray.